Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show, podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, please subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be toddler adoption. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both adoption and infertility. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you are struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save money, you can go to their website, faringfertility.com. If you are a fan of Creating a Family, and we hope that you are, and you want to help us to grow, and we hope that you do, please rate this podcast on iTunes. You can go to the creatingafamily.org slash radio show page, click on the iTunes button, and then give us whatever number of stars you want. And if you're feeling uh, a little, uh, like you have a little extra time, please write a review so others can find us because iTunes uses these reviews um, in order to recommend podcasts uh, and radio shows. We are number one for adoption and infertility, and we'd like to stay that way. So we would truly appreciate any help you could give us. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. So you can sign up for our newsletters at any page of creatingafamily.org, top left-hand side of the page if you're looking. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including independent adoption centers whose mission it is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in New York, Florida, Texas, and more. You can visit them online at adoptionhelp.org. We also have Children's Connections. They're an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the U.S. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions, which have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Nightlight provides international, domestic, foster, embryo donation, and adoption services through its uh, embryo donation and embryo adoption services through its Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program. And last but certainly not least, we have All Blessings International. They're an adoption agency with offices in Missouri and Kentucky, working with families throughout the U.S., placing children from Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant program. This will be a re-airing of a show we did in 2008, interviewing Mary Hopkins Best, the author of the wonderful book, Topper Adoption, The Weaver's Craft. 
Adopting a toddler is different from adopting an infant, but it's also different from adopting a child with language and the cognitive ability ability to understand what's happening uh, with the adoption, at least on some level. We talk about some of these differences and tips for helping your toddler adjust to your family. We also talk about tips for uh, attaching and things that you can do to make it easier for your toddler when they come to your family. So, and, it's, and, and let me add that this information is even more relevant today with the increase in the number of families adopting toddlers. So, without further ado, I turn you turn you over to myself and Mary Hopkins Best of almost five years ago. Thank you, Mary, for joining us today. Thank you, Don. My pleasure. Yeah, this book you originally said was written for 12 to 36 month olds, but I really think that much of the information is easily applicable to preschoolers as well. Um, toddlers and preschoolers uh, are both adopt can be both adopted domestically and, and internationally, and in either way, toddler adoption is different from both infant adoption as well as older child adoption, um, because children this age don't have either the language or the cognitive skills to participate in adoption preparation, but they are distinctly affected by it. Uh, everything in their world is being turned topsy-turvy. Uh, now, you adopted a toddler. Can you tell me something about that experience which led you to want to write a book about it? Right. We adopted our son, Gustavo, when he was, uh, well, we initially met him when he was 15 months old because we did travel to Peru to adopt him. And the uh, placement practice at that time was um, you barely got off the plane when the child was handed to you and then the child was with you um, during the period of time that you were processing the adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, he arrived home when he was 18 months. So there were three months um, most of that time. Um, my husband was actually still in Peru um, with our son and um my daughter and I returned after two weeks thinking they would be coming home very shortly after us and that uh, <laughs> extended um, much longer than we thought. So we kind of laugh and we say Gustavo was placed with us when he was 15 and arri- months and arrived home at 18 months. Um, and um, I'd actually, uh, we made a very deliberate decision to adopt a child who was a uh, toddler age child, um, we went into toddler adoption fully anticipating that there would be some special issues, although at that time there was very little recognition of that in uh, the adoption community uh, with adoption social workers um, and actually the public in general. um, Mm -hmm. You know, we knew a lot less um, 18 years ago about that early effect of care and uh, disruptions in care on young children, there was there was still kind of a common belief that um, toddlers were basically just larger infants and would, mm-hmm. that they would be very um, uh, unaffected by what had happened to them in the first year. Um, child development people knew better. Um, I actually, again, because of my background with child development, um, children who are not developing normally, my background in special education and um, working with children in my field who had been institutionalized, actually, um, I very much anticipated the challenges that we were going to be dealing with. You make a distinction between parents who deliberately choose to adopt a toddler and those who simply accept the toddler referral. Why make that distinction? Um, because I think you you have 
um, different intentions um, pursuing the adoption. If you are deliberately adopting a toddler, um, typically that individual or, or parents have investigated, the, again, the type of issues that they might be dealing with. Um, oftentimes they have already um, um, joined a support group, whether that's an online group that they're participating in. Um, typically I've found they have done more research. Um, oftentimes people that I talk to will tell me that they read my book. Um, people who um, settle for a toddler, I have found in my conversations with those individuals, tend to be engaging in more magical thinking, that there won't be differences. Um, it, it oftentimes, in fact, will tell me they have been assured by, and they will name their relatives and you know other people, um, less and less are they being assured by their social workers that there aren't going to be um, issues associated with the age of their child. But um, I think settling for a toddler adoption really sets up parents to be disappointed um, if they are going to have challenging issues. And most of them rise above that and, um, um, you know, um, seek out information and adjust and, and get help. But then there is a real transition process for the parent even of accepting the fact that it is different than an infant adoption, whereas the deliberate toddler adopter um, has probably already gone through that process of thinking about their different options and making that decision. And they're just they're in a different stage um, in their transition and preparation than um, someone who is, is either settling for a toddler adoption or pretending that there won't be anything different or, you know, hoping on hope that there won't be any challenges. You know, and this is a, a relevant issue even more so now because of some of the changes internationally where children have to remain on national registries or databases longer, and so children are coming home older. And what used to be where we considered young to be a six-month-old, now when a young child is often 12 months internationally. And so this is, it's becoming more of an issue for families. Oh, um, absolutely. We have a lot of email questions. I'm going to try to work them in as we go. Here's one from Katie. My husband and I are both in our late 40s. It appears that the only way we will be able to parent is to adopt internationally. For the country we are looking at, we will likely be referred a preschooler. We don't want a child with lots of problems, so we are concerned about not getting an infant. We do, re we really do want to parent. Any suggestions then for Katie? Well, the the first thing I would say, there are no guarantees Mm -hmm. any parenting situation. Including um, biological, but, including newborn infant adoption, there's no guarantee. A absolutely. Um, um, all of us have faced uh, challenges in parenting and, and unique issues with our children. Mm -hmm. um, so there isn't any way to get a guarantee. Um, however, um, there is certainly information that they can obtain about the care that the um, child or the potential children that they might be adopting, the type of care that they have had. Um, the, you know, the two, the two main um, correlates to attachment issues are the quality of care 
and the disruptions that a child has experienced. And by disruptions, what do you mean? Um, disruptions in caregivers, um, um, having different caregivers rather than a consistent caregiver, um, being moved from one setting to another, or even if they have been in one setting, if um, because of the ratio of caregivers to children or because the turnover in the caregivers that they have not had a consistent caregiver, or at least a very small number of caregivers. And um, they might be able to get more information about that from the agency that they're working with. Um, something that you had said earlier, Don, too, is, is certainly true in regard to um, some of the issues that they might have with a preschooler. Um, uh, chronological age means a lot less than developmental age with children. And um, sometimes when we adopt children, um, from uh, this could be true with domestic adoptions, depending again on the type of care that the child has received, the type of stimulation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the the chronological age is going to mean less than the child's developmental age, and their development they may have developmental delays in you know all aspects, um, their physical development, um, again depending on the type of care that they've received their social-emotional development, their cognitive development, um, et cetera. So it is important to think in, in terms of, of where the child's at developmentally than just their chronological age. Um, but, you know, having said that, again, and if they're looking for an ironclad guarantee that they aren't going to have challenges, um, they're not going to get that. And again, even if they um, had birth children, they aren't going to get that. Um, they... I need to go ahead. No, go ahead. I, it, this this question uh, I got yesterday, and I actually wanted to start with it because it made me smile. This is from Julie. She says, "My question is simple. Why is the book subtitled The Weaver's Craft?" I've read the book and still don't understand the title. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I assume it has to do there at the very beginning of the book. You include a poem by Richard Best. And I assume the title comes from that. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I have to tell you actually the 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 history on the on the book title and um my publisher would kind of laugh about this too because um my original idea for the title was Forged Steel. Um, with a subtitle of Toddler Adoption. And you, oh, you interesting, can, yeah. I mean, you, I'm sure you understand immediately what I mean by that yeah. because the attachment that is formed between child and caregivers with a child who initially was, was very, very resistant to attachment is much like the process of forging steel. You go through the hottest fires, <laughs> um, <laughs> But the result, both the parent-to-child attachment and vice versa, is is a, a very, very strong attachment. Now, Pat Johnston didn't think that was a very welcoming title for a book, so she <laughs> dissuaded me from that title very early in the process. And we decided, well, being right up front, what it is about would be important, so toddler adoption became yeah. the obvious choice. And then, um, as you say, um, the fact that my husband had written this poem for our son um, was so meaningful to me, and my husband is not a poet, and other than some poems that he wrote early in our courting days, um, this is the only other poem he's ever written, which makes it extremely meaningful, and um, 
um, in this poem, and I don't need to read it. It's in the book if um, people want to take a look at that. The imagery is that um, all adoptive families are a tapestry of, you know, threads um, from different origins. And um, as a family, the challenge is to, you know, create this beautiful tapestry with um, these different um, colors and textures and so forth. Um, and in the case of toddler adoption, there has there have been torn fibers, and a child does not become available for toddler adoption that that doesn't have loss in his or her background. And that's an important point. It yes. doesn't matter whether you're adopting internationally or domestically. It's a myth to believe that there are children available who have been in in loving, caring. Uh, bonded families and uh, for whatever reason then are placed for adoption. It just doesn't happen usually. There are a few exceptions. There are a few countries, but generally there are situations of of, uh, usually not the best situations that a child ends up, uh, families end up relinquishing a child after they've already parented it for uh, a year and a half at least. Yeah, Yeah. and we're familiar with some of those situations too. There are a few exceptions. There are a few countries. You know, but, even, if, but even at the even in the best case scenario yeah. that a child has been in a very consistent, loving, uh, healthy attachment, um, they have to transfer that attachment. Right. So, and and mm-hmm. that is a, a huge loss. So yeah. again, yeah, it involves loss one way or the other. Right. So there's both this this um, kind of um, um, mending process as well as you know the development of the kind of the new fibers in the. Uh, expanded family. So, you know, one of my concerns when writing a book uh, about adoption was how to balance the positive with the negative. And mm-hmm. so much that's written on adoption right now tends to focus on the negative, primarily because it's focusing on a problem that somebody is having that's directly dealing with that. It's not their intent to show the, you know, the balanced picture. But I certainly know that that was something that that it was important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, when just going into writing a book, so before we get too far into our talk, what are some of the unique blessings of adopting a child over the age of one? You know, because I have to tell you that when, you know, I've interviewed well over a hundred families in the writing and researching of my book, and and many many of them um, adopted children within this age range. And what struck me was the great differences in children and in families transitionings and in kids' attachments. Um, some, you know. Have so quickly and, uh, and attached so well, and some struggled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are some of the unique blessings of of uh, some of the advantages of adopting a child over the age of one? Uh, my husband and I actually having that conversation between us when we were going through that process of making the decision. Um, we actually were pretty honest with each other that um, neither one of us are, you know, totally enamored with the infancy stage mm-hmm. and now uh, w- our our other child is a birth daughter and you know we certainly enjoyed her infancy but we were never the type of people that asked if we could hold six-week-old babies or eight-week-old babies <laughs> um, we actually find um, you know children who are starting to communicate starting to be mobile um, we're just fascinated by that stage of development um, and found ourselves drawn to other people's children that were toddler age and up. So that was one of the reasons that we made that decision. The um, difference in age between our children was another reason. We were very deliberately looking for an age difference of three to five years. 
and um, find that we like to be able to focus on our two children's stages of development very independently. Some people like to have their kids very close in age and they sort of bundle them. You know, well, the kids are now preschoolers, the kids are now um, middle age, et cetera, but we really liked that um, distinction, but not um, so many years apart that they also weren't going to be playing with each other and so forth. Um, we knew that there would be, again, those unique challenges associated with um, not yet being able to, you know, um, prepare the child by talking to the child, um, mm -hmm. processing those attachment issues. Um, because we were deliberately looking for some special needs aspects of um, our adoption, um, we, we found that to be just, you know, something, a kind of a challenge that we were very, very interested in. Um, we're a very active family. Um, we're very outdoorsy people. Um, when our um, children were younger, we would camp all the time and we would participate in these activities. It really appealed to us that um, our child would be able to immediately jump into those activities. And fortunately, he um, had that personality and temperament that he absolutely loved the bonfires in the backyard and loved camping and um, doing those type of things. Um, yeah, and, and, and a toddler and is more certainly more quickly able to do all those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the developmental goal of of toddlerhood uh, is to achieve independence from parents after a year of almost total dependence, right. and so sometimes it's hard to distinguish the normal development mm -hmm. at this stage from attachment issues. Right. And uh, can you talk a little about that, that a little just right. briefly about what the normal development, developmental stages at this age, mm -hmm. at, this, at this age, right. at this age? Let me, let me first just emphasize what you just said, Dawn, and that is, that is one of the greatest challenges of toddler adoption. The biological time clock um, for toddlers, there's that drive toward independence and um, with a child that you have parented since infancy, when they reach the toddler stage, we we praise them, reward them um, for those steps toward independence. You know what a what a big boy you can you know drink out of your sippy cup alone now. Mm -hmm. um, um, reinforcing if they can fall uh, fall asleep without being rocked mm -hmm. uh, ahead of time. So, and and then there's just you know biologically, unless the child has some significant physical developmental delays, you know, the biological time clock allows them now to actually start standing and literally toddling away from us. Um, so it, it is very, very challenging because to create that attachment, you do have to recreate, in at least in some very important ways, dependency on the parent because attachment is about the child looking to the parent to meet their needs and recognizing that that you know dependency on the parent and accepting it, um, internalizing that parental care and that parental guidance. So that's that's a real challenge because you don't want to um, you know delay long term that child's development. You want to be working on their language skills, for example. You want to be um, stimulating their physical development, but yet you have to also be creating that dependency on the parent to form the attachment. So, you know, one one example that I like to give people because everyone has had this experience with a toddler, if not their own toddler, they've, they've observed it in other children's toddlers. 
one of one of the things that toddlers do that is just such a visual representation of the toddler's um, striving to develop independence and that you know that internal drive, um, but yet that need to be dependent on the parents is what happens when they first start learning to walk. And one of a toddler's favorite games is to try to run away from the parent. Mm-hmm. But a child who has a healthy attachment to the parent is always. Um, visually checking back with the parent to make sure that they can see them, they know that, you know, they're not out of sight, and um, they become frantic if, in fact, they toddled a little bit too far and now they can't see their parent anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, or if any anything, you know, happens, something startles them, something frightens to them, they immediately look back to the parent, um, seek the parent out, want to be comforted by the parent. And... You know, they kind of they they kind of swing back and forth on that continuum of you know trying to escape the parent, needing the parent to scoop them up, rescue them, um, give them comfort, and so forth. But with a toddler who isn't displaying any attachment behaviors, that's one of the very observable ways to um, watch their attachment to their parent. Do they look to the parent? Do they seek the parent out? Um, if they're suddenly frightened, um, who, who do they turn to? Do they do they immediately seek out that parent, or are they indiscriminate? They will seek out any adult, or do they in fact not even seek out an adult? They're, you know, they they have such attachment issues that they think they have to you know fight their own um, battles. This is kind of a segue into a question uh, from Elizabeth. Our daughter was two when we adopted her. She was potty trained during the day and sometimes at night. She was drinking out of a cup. After being home for four months, she has lost any idea of potty training and wants to drink from a bottle. She intentionally spills when using a cup. She wants to be carried everywhere. This is all exhausting. Not that I'm complaining because she's great, but we thought one of the advantages of adopting a toddler was avoiding some of this. Do you have any suggestions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> My first thought was that much of this is a very positive. Oh, it is extremely I, you know, positive. That, yeah. Extremely I mean, positive because the child is actually creating the opportunities for that attachment. Exactly. Parenting. And she's creating it on her own oh. so that they don't have to try to reintroduce the bottle so that they can have oh, that cuddling exactly. and staring into each other's eyes and yes. stroking the cheek and oh, things like that. They're very, very lucky in that regard because most of us had to force those issues. Exactly. More I think th- it is more common to have to try to uh, reintroduce it than, than there is. So I think, exhausting or no, I think this sounds very positive. Well, that reminds me of, I've had a number of parents um, <laughs> who are very distraught say to me, I adopted a toddler because I have to be able to sleep through the night. <laughs> and they, they thought that they were going to be able to sleep through the night. Um, and, uh, again, the type of behaviors that that child is, is needing and wanting at this point um, is extremely important for uh, the toddler's attachment to the parent. And it's not going to last forever, mm-hmm. um, but um, um, parents need to know they're going to do a lot of night parenting with toddlers. If they're not, again, actually, I would be concerned if I were them. Um, with a child that you parented since infancy, for example, if they wake up at night, you know, you expect, unless they're ill or, you know, there's something unusual occurring, that they should be able to self-comfort and get themselves back to sleep. 
if you have a new toddler, you would take advantage of them needing you at night to, again, be able to show the child that you are available, you're going to meet their needs um, so that you're building that trust that you're available and um, will meet those needs. It, it is. It's a very, very positive sign. It won't last forever, um, but they're really recreating those same attachment processes that normally would be occurring during infancy. Right. I guess the old, you know, this too shall pass. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. You it's know, and, and, it's and hard another... to, in the midst of it, I, 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 am, I, I have sympathy because I completely understand that in the midst of it, oh. it is just really hard. It's exhausting. Well, it's it's a little scary because you think, oh, my gosh, are we going to keep reverting? Are we going to keep going backwards here? And, yeah. well, um, she didn't say this in her question. I wonder if also what might be happening is that, um, maybe relatives and friends are um, um, disapproving this. And uh, again, what I have heard some parents say is that even if they recognize the need to recreate that attachment process that involves a lot of meeting needs on demands, um, body contact, stimulation, mm-hmm. um, regressing to bottle feeding if needed, that, you know, family members, oh, my gosh, you know, you, you know, at two you shouldn't be needing to do this. But, again, exactly. their their frame of reference is a normally developing two-year-old that um, – that had that attachment process in infancy. Right. So sometimes, you know, you just, you you know, if, if people are disapproving, just don't share this information with them. Find people who do understand yes. what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, to give also that share support. with your parents some of the information you've learned uh, mm-hmm. about adoption and about attachment and and have them read sections of your book or sections of my book have them have them read something or send them a letter explaining why this is important because often as you point out they simply don't know i mean yeah. it's not that they're being in particularly you know disapproving they just simply don't have the information oh absolutely that's an excellent idea and along with that you're probably also going to be dealing with those people um again particularly extended family members close family friends that you're going to have to explain why you are not encouraging your child to go to them for um, yes. to have their needs met. You're not going to be encouraging them to be picking up your child. Right. And, you again, you're probably, um, um, there's going to be some disapproval associated with that because that indiscriminate affection um, is sometimes categorized as, you know, good good baby or good toddler behavior when, in fact, again, that, that um isn't a good sign in regard to attachment. So, yeah, I think you bring up a very good point. There are a lot of things associated with toddler or older children adoption that you really need to, you know, kind of get your support group to understand and help you with. Um, Exactly. Have them on your side. Yes. You're listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. Today I'm interviewing Mary Hopkins Best, author of Toddler Adoption. Here is a email we received. Uh, we are adopting a child, a girl between three and four years old, from India, who may or may not have psychosocial dwarfism. Please discuss the positive aspects of this prognosis, recovery, etc. We hope she is not a severe case. The orphanage says she is fine, just very short. Our doctor thinks she is more or less okay, but there are no guarantees. <clears throat> I speak Hindu. Uh, like her, and we have a 10-year-old bio daughter in the house. Mm. Also, can we change her name, which is impossible for Americans to pronounce, 
And I should also mention that I have another email also asking the question about name chains. Uh-huh. I am not an expert uh, on psychosocial dwarfism. It's my understanding that it is uh, an extreme form of failure to thrive caused by uh, neglect uh, in the early years. Um, I don't know if you feel comfortable, and I'm not really sure that it's the, the purpose of this show to really go into a specific uh, diagnosis. Uh, that it appears that there is at least some evidence that this is a child that has had uh, some rather extreme neglect, although they may not know this. Mm. Um, why don't we focus on the name change at this point, unless there's something that you want to speak to as to uh, any information you specifically have on the psychosocial dwarfism. Right. Again, I, I, don't, I don't want to get into specific diagnosis, and I, but I think a general rule of thumb, I mean, they um, good for them. They've obtained as much information as they can. It sounds like they probably provided the information that they have to their pediatrician. Um, um, just a couple comments about that. Um, there are uh, there are doctors who specialize in um, international adoptions and um, some of the diagnoses that are not at all common in the United States yeah. and being able to even to interpret the information that they get, having a better understanding of um, the type of information and interpreting it from other countries. And um, I, I always encourage people to seek out that information. Um, as an example, we had a psychological report that had been done um, with our son, um, it was the scariest thing I've ever read. <laughs> yeah, um, often can be. Right, right. And um, what, what, when, when uh, we didn't do this before Gustavo came home, but as we worked with counselors and worked with a psychiatrist, for example, later they were able to sort of put that in a different frame of reference than us simply getting this information and and I'm and there are just cultural differences in regard to mm-hmm. how those are done in other countries and so the forth. vast differences and yeah. these would be international adoption doctors and I have a uh, information on my website findingyourchild.com and it's on the frequently asked question page um, on how to find an international right. adoption doctor that can help you. What the right. fact I that think, she I, speaks? Oh, go ahead. I, I just I think that's really important. And even um, you know the size charts are different in different countries. So information on she's extremely mm-hmm. small and and you know putting that in the context yeah. of yeah what what her development was and so forth. Um, that the mom speaks Hindi is is a very wow. a, a wonderful. Uh, that's great. Oh, that is huge. Uh, oh, I I am. I am very, very envious yes, of, of that. Um, but, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the name change. Well, yeah. anyone that has read my book um, knows that I do have a strongly biased opinion on that. And I believe with a toddler that um, it is important um, to acknowledge the importance of that name, minimally to try to incorporate that name into what the child is going to be called at home or um, combine it in some way. Um, I think my son's experience is, is pretty typical. He is now 18 years old, extremely proud of his name, and no one forgets his name. Um, but he did go through periods of time where he was embarrassed to have a name that was different mm-hmm. than most of his classmates, um, was annoyed about having to explain um, why he has a name that you know is unusual um, in 
his school setting, but he did. And, you know, so we had we had conversations at different levels, depending on his stage of development, as to why we retained his name. Um, and you were lucky because he could always go by Gus at the time when yeah. he when he if he chose to have an American mm-hmm. name. And that is absolutely what most of his friends call him. Um, and actually, I'm not crazy about that as a nickname, but obviously his friends are, you know, you can't pick your children's um, nicknames. But yes, he can, but, you know, he as it turned out now as a young adult, um, it would have been much harder to explain why we changed his name. Was there something wrong with it? You know, did we not want people to, you know, know that maybe there would be a reason that, you know, he had a different um, um, name. Um, I'm very, very glad that we did it. You know, and I take probably a slightly more relaxed approach, depending, I think, the age of the child matters. Mm-hmm. I also think that it, it is a, if it is a difficult name, mm-hmm. in this case she's saying an impossible name for Americans to mm-hmm. pronounce, mm-hmm. I think that is something to factor in. But what I would suggest is perhaps a compromise of some sort where certainly keeping that name at the mm-hmm. very least uh, as a middle name. As a middle name. Mm-hmm. Or as a first name. But look, is, is it one like I, I, I look at uh, Gustavo and I think, well, if it were a difficult to pronounce name, there was a nick, there's an obvious nickname. Mm-hmm. You know, is there a way to nickname that so that mm-hmm. you could keep her name, but it is an easily pronounced nickname, either in her native mm-hmm. language or in, in Gus, I guess would be the, it would be an American. That, uh, I, uh, let's see, yeah, this child's between three and four though, and that's, to me, that's mm-hmm. at the uh, at that. If, if I have a 12-month-old, that's one thing. If I have a three or four-year-old, it just seems to me that that child mm-hmm. r- really does identify, especially oh, oh, in so this true. case because this woman speaks the language and can actually pronounce the name, similar right. to how it it was pronounced mm-hmm. as as when she was. So there's certainly an attachment there. Right. So she may want to keep it as the first name, and then. As the child gets older, let her make choices as to if she wants to nickname mm-hmm. herself or because you know, as you point I, out, if she's, you know, it, you still are going to have to explain it one way or the other if either if what yeah. your decision is. Right, why you kept the name or or why you changed the name, and again, um, honoring where that name came from. I I think um, for us also it was important. Um, because of what the name Gustavo means, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and the story that we have explained to him. Although again, we have never been able to re- to um, locate any birth relatives. Well, in, in Peru. your case, it was his birth mother who gave him the name. It was his birth mother, and you know, in our in our story of um, his life story, um, we said we're very very sure that she gave him this name because she knew he was going to need to be a strong. Um, um, person and you know it's again yeah. we can't prove it we haven't been able to locate her but um, in some countries it's uh, very clear that the name was not given uh, by a birth parent and mm-hmm. that you can factor in as as well the mm-hmm. other questioner on uh, the advisability of changing a child's name the child was 12 months uh, or would be 12 months um, uh, when they are. They think. Uh, let's. See, I'd have to go back and read. Yeah, that they, they will be getting the child, and she will be 12 months. And so they were. Uh, uh, Again, there isn't that. She would. She would. I mean, she would actually um, be at the would, stage where she would recognize. She would recognize her, her name, though. But right, it isn't going to be as much of a disruption for a 12-month-old. 
yeah. but but I think your suggestion is is very very important. Minimally incorporate it into the child's name. And um, I have a faculty member who recently adopted and also uh, um, internationally and also the child's name. Very very difficult to pronounce. And they came up with a great nickname that, um, and I I think within the family they. Um, to honor his name, they did learn how to pronounce it, and they do use his full name, but um, affectionately use his nickname. And at his preschool, they use his nickname. And, and one suggestion I have, and then I, we need to—we've got so many questions here. I'm, uh, one suggestion would be make sure that when you are uh, picking up your child, if you are fortunate enough to travel to pick him up, to learn to pronounce the child's name the way it was pronounced by his caregivers. Um, And if you aren't traveling to pick your child up, to find somebody who is a native speaker and practice it so that, you know, that you actually say it in a way that the child would recognize. Here's Mm -hmm. a couple of questions all on transitioning, and I really want to get to them Mm -hmm. because I think that that is, uh, you have so many very practical suggestions in your book on this. And it's uh, the transitioning of your child uh, into your home. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to start by, I think we can get to all your suggestions through. I've got... uh, uh, three questions here. Uh, my child will be one years old. She's in her orphanage now. Would it be better to go to, the mo- to a motel and stay about two to three weeks to help her adjust? This way, we could take her on trips to the orphanage while there and let her play and see her special mothers and know that we are there, too. Mm. Thanks so much. This really does worry me. Oh, wow. Oh, the the fact that they have that opportunity is huge. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that is wonderful. It is. I, I, it is. <laughs> That and and more of us would have that opportunity if we think. And there are certain countries, Kazakhstan, for mm. instance, where a 15-day uh, bonding period is required by law. And although it certainly adds to the cost and the hassle mm. of adopting from that country, I can't help but think it is such a wise law to have. Oh, absolutely. And it, it is interesting, isn't it? The countries that are understanding the importance of that. Although I know there are still countries that have a similar process to the the process that we had with adopting Gustavo, but very much you know, so. Yours, I don't know. I'd have to actually sit down and give some thought to it. But there are both. You're exactly oh the, the continuum. But again, it's the countries that are more progressive have a better understanding of uh, the trauma to children of having no transition that are moving in the direction of either encouraging or allowing or or the really progressive ones that would actually require that process. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, um, if you know, if if you knew what you knew if you knew now what you knew then, what would you have done differently? <laughs> the single most um important thing that we would have done differently, although again I don't know what kind of challenges we would have run into that, would have been to have a transition process for Gustavo. Um I, I just you know in, in And and, and, picture that. Describe what that would look like. In an ideal world, what would Mm -hmm. you do? Mm -hmm. Well, in in um, his situation, he was he was in a private home, and um, we would have again gotten the hotel room that we got, and we would have immediately started making those visits to the home that he was in. Initially, we would not have attempted to engage him. We would have allowed him to watch us. Um, Because of the attachment issues that he had, he was a very, very watchful child. 
Um, in fact, he still has that characteristic of remembering everything he sees. We can go someplace and he mm. could recreate how to get there the next time we go there um, because that had been a coping mechanism that he needed to kind of survive in the environments that he had been in. So we would have allowed him first to um, watch us and we would have engaged with his caregiver um, and then we would have um, um, gradually um, started to engage with him. Um, we would have asked for permission, and we would have always asked for permission in front of him to be involved in his care and his feeding. Um, we would have asked the caregiver to um, um, show her permission of us being involved in his care by the way she talked to Gustavo, by the way she interacted with us, um, by her handing Gustavo to us. Um, we probably would have had to sit side by side, maybe take turns with some of those caregiving tasks initially until we felt that he was not um, frightened. We would not have attempted to take him out of that setting until he was allowing us in that setting to be responsible for some of his care, engage with us. We certainly would have involved our daughter in that process too because um, actually as I've heard other parents also describe, he was less resistant to engaging with our daughter than he was with us. I hear um, that a lot as well. Yeah. Um, I, think it's a, yep. I think it's a natural thing if you think. Children. Oh, oh, it absolutely is. And and also just watching the, the um, interaction of street children in Peru, there is quite a bit of interaction and actually older children caring for younger children. So I'm thinking you know, attachments that he may have formed uh, prior to us arriving was probably with older children that mm -hmm. helped in his care. So we would have, you know, in, involved Natalie in that as well and, again, um, done parallel play where he was playing with her. We would have sat on the floor, gotten down to his level and so forth. Um, and we would not have, again, taken him out of that setting until we had established some of those connections. And then we would, we would start on gradual outings. We would have... Um, learned from his caregiver about his interests. So if there were particular places that he liked to go to, things that he liked to do, our son was fascinated by all things um, automotive, train-related. Mm -hmm. um, so we would have tr you know, selected outings that he would have been interested in, very short to begin with, go, mm -hmm. returning there for caregiving. Um, and keep brother. returning him back to oh, absolutely. his foster home with longer. Now, yep. you've just described the ideal, and, and what I hear is a very, very gradual. Very, Ray very gradual. Now, Rayanne writes a question, and she says they're ready to pick up their 19-month-old from Guatemala. He's been living with the same foster family since he was born. Oh, wow. We've been to visit him three times, three months, six months, and 12 months. Mm. We've left pictures and a video of us while we have waited. My question is, what is the best way to transition him when we pick him up? Um, my how husband old is, is he now? He's 19 months. Oh, wow. So they were there 3, 6, 9. And 12. Wow. Now she has said that they are going to, they, they, she says, I understand that doing it over a week would be ideal, but we do not have that much time. Mm. So here's the question. If for whatever reason you are not able to uh, transition over the, as you've described it, which is nice and slow. Yeah. Uh, now they've done a lot of things good. They've, they've, yes, they've visited. And, and when you visit, it seems like there would be an advantage rather than in Guatemala, oftentimes the children are dropped off at the hotel right. 
with the uh, the adoptive parents. And yeah. what I hear you saying is that perhaps the better bet would be for you to go to the mm. visit the child at the foster home and just interact with the foster parents. Oh, exactly. Minimally that. In in Gustavo's placement with us, the person that he had lived with, and he had only lived with her for a couple weeks before we arrived, but still she was a known uh, yes. She didn't even she didn't even come along to drop him off with us. So there was absolutely no sort of ritualistic, you right. know, handing off of that caregiver where he would have been able to observe her reaction to us. So minimally, they go to where the child is, and again, even if they have a few days, um, because if the child is now 19 months and they have not visited since 12 months, that's like almost half of that child's life. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, even though the, you know, the pictures is a good idea and the video, oh, but nonetheless, it's, you're exactly right. From this kiddo's perspective, uh, these people are strangers. Right, right. And, and I, I'm hoping during those visits that the child was not placed with them in the hotel and then the child went back because those would have all been disruptions in that child's care too. And, and chances I, are pretty good that that's what did happen though. That's uh that is the um mm-hmm. uh, that's the norm. That um, the child spends those visits mm-hmm. in the hotel. Mhm. Yeah. Up, mm-hmm. I hear okay. people who um are trying to change that, mm-hmm. but I think um mm-hmm. the majority of time that is okay. the norm. Okay. So, so uh, what you're suggesting would be, at least with this visit, mm-hmm. to not do that, to right. if, if you can, and sometimes, right. quite frankly, and and uh, that that's not even an option in Guatemala and in their countries, for instance, China, where it's not an option ever. You are not allowed uh, mm-hmm. into the orphanage, and oftentimes the uh, caregiver. Who or the person who brings the child to you is mm-hmm. has not is not the child's caregiver. So mm-hmm. we're describing, and for those of you listening, uh, uh, we're going to then talk. Of the next question is going to be about well, if you don't have that option, then mm-hmm. what do you do? So mm-hmm. hang with us. This is not a fatal mistake. But if you have the option, mm-hmm. what I hear you say for Rayanne is uh, do it as gradually as you can over the time that you have. Do it originally starting off in the foster home with just you and letting uh, your son see you. I think it's a son. I'm having to quickly mm-hmm. read back. Mm-hmm. Yes, son. See you interact with the foster mom. Um, and it's just slow and gradual. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, and in some form of, 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 of giving and receiving ceremony, just if it's ceremony, it's probably a little too hoity-toity, but uh, somehow with her giving, letting that child, even though he's only 19 months old, see that there is, uh, permission being granted right. for for them to um, parent him or, right. him or interact with him. And I think what you said is that this child has lived with the foster parents since birth. So there there is, I'm sure, a very very strong attachment. Yes. So that okay. child is that child has learned to look to um, the foster parents for um, permission as well as um, you know to, um, for that. Um, indication as to are these people safe <laughs> people is yeah. a safe situation um you know a toddler in an unusual situation they will look at the parent in the parent's sure. facial expression so something else that would be helpful to anticipate in this situation this is going to be a huge loss for the foster parents as well and um how the foster parents handle um that transition if the foster parents are you know, hysterical or, you know, they're going to go through a grieving process, but it's important that they think about 
um, you know, when the child is there and that transition is occurring, that um, they work at being positive about it, um, providing reassurances to the child. But I'm sure that's going to be very hard for them as well. Oh, yeah, of course, um, yeah. And, yeah, but, the, but that child is going to go through a real grieving process at the loss of, of um, the, the parents that um, he has had for 19 months now. And there are little tricks, sending a transition object ahead oh, of time so yeah. that the child will bring something with him that has the smell and the feel that oh. he's accompanied to. Their idea of a photo album is a great one. Um, absolutely. And make sure you take pictures of your of you with the child's foster parent, of oh, the child absolutely. with the foster parent. This all seems so obvious. I, I imagine that this is... Uh, here's a. Uh, this is something they've already done. Here's an email from Katie. My husband and I are adopting a 20-month-old boy from Taiwan. We are awaiting our travel call any day. When that arrives, we will be in Taiwan within two weeks. So we're on pins and needles waiting for this mm-hmm. call. We have read your book and are very thankful for the information. We are curious what bonding techniques you would recommend using right away when we meet our son in country, or are there any techniques you would recommend not trying? Now, she's talking about bond. I don't know... Uh, in Taiwan, the children are uh, usually in uh, an orphanage, although they're relatively small orphanages. Uh, so some of the techniques you've just mentioned about mm-hmm. going in those two weeks, being at the orphanage. Right. Uh, any other suggestions? And, and, and absolutely becoming involved in the child's care um, because the bonding the bonding will occur as, as the child transitions the acceptance of the caregiver from whoever the caregiver has been to the new parents. So, and, and also, again, being involved, um, if you think about in infancy what creates that attachment process, there's a lot of tactile involvement with that in terms of the, the that occurs during physical care, but also they could start developing um, rituals that they would use, maybe bedtime rituals that they would be able to be involved in, that if they establish some of those rituals that might be the, you know, the rocking before bed, et cetera, that, that they're then able to continue those rituals as the child moves in with them. So the, and getting as you know, much information is, as you can oh, about. Even about the food that the child Exactly liked. about the food. Sleep, uh, the yep. food being probably the most important. And then what a sleeping ritual is. It's oh, exactly. Toileting ritual. Any of yep. these, anything that you could recreate, even if it's right. not necessarily the way that you want to continue it, to, you know, I always tell people, buy, if the child's on formula, buy as much of the formula yep. as you can fit in your suitcase. Oh, it's that, exactly. And, and then gradually transition exactly. to the different schedules, et cetera. So yes. having having as few changes as possible. So, you, yeah, like you had said earlier, you change, it, it, you know, even if it would be the clothing that the child um, brings with them. Um, yes. You know, and commonly you want to show off your new child, so you want all new clothes. I, I'm not, again, I think back on things that we would have yes. done differently. We had to provide new clothes because um, they, the, the woman who had taken care of him was so poor that she couldn't afford to send with him literally a, even a diaper. Yes. But what we should have done is provide the new clothes to her for uh-huh. other children in. and yeah. send him with the clothes, the blanket, um, you know, as tattered right. as it was, send that with him. So right. if you think about everything in the child's life from food to routines to the blanket that they sleep with and um and change as few of those things as possible. That's exactly what I. That is exactly what I say as well. It's just you try to minimize it. 
You're listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility, and today I'm interviewing Mary Hopkins Best, author of Toddler Adoption. Here's an email that just came in from Natasha. Let's see. Dawn, this is a comment for you. I've read your book on the airplane to Columbia to adopt our son. He was two and a half. You stress the need for routines once you get home. Mm-hmm. This was the best advice I got. Mm. My free spirit nature really hates routines, and when we were first home, I avoided them because I thought they would make me feel constrained. But my son was having a hard time, so I reread the second half of your book and took your advice and set a routine time to eat, play, pick up, run errands, bath, and bedtime rituals. The fact that you were very practical helped me, and it has made a world of difference. I want to make sure that you mention this. And and I will mention oh. that you also say this. Um, yes, <laughs> routines do. That's uh, once you get once you return home. But uh, in particular, I think it's very helpful at well, the beginning. You, your child has so much to adjust to that you don't want part of the adjustment to be wondering what is going to happen next, mm-hmm. uh, because there's a lot of energy devoted to adjusting to change. So establishing those routines and um, sticking with those religiously. And that's actually kind of a toddler thing anyway, that um, they're, they're sticklers for routine, so it kind of mm-hmm. fits into that, you know, the developmental need of a toddler anyway. But I know there's a lot of challenges against that, especially with a new child. You know, the relatives want you to come and stay in a hotel so they can meet your new child. Uh-huh. People want to come and visit at all times, yes. of the day and night and so forth. But but you really need to cocoon um, yeah, for a period of well, time. Well, I like that cocoon, yes. That's exactly what I think you need to do. Uh, at the, and I think that sometimes people who haven't had children don't realize that you're going to probably get there anyway, that, that children do force us to uh, because they are routine little beings, and, and so they will get us there. Here's a, an email from Kevin. I'm at work, so I'll submit this via email and listen to the show tonight. Our daughter's transition has been almost too easy. She's 28 months and has been home six months. And by all outward appearances, she is not grieving at all. She seems attached to us both, and although she is fairly quiet, she acts happy. The only thing a little troubling is that she absolutely hates the church nursery. Her reaction is stronger than I would think is typical, but since she is our first child, I'm not sure. Should we be, should we be worried that she is bearing her emotions? I think we're worried that this is too good to be true. <laughs> oh, don't go looking for trouble, is what I say. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, the children's... Children's temperaments vary a great deal in, in Amen. Uh, their their resilience. It, you know, there isn't any perfect formula, and you know, a lot of parents are kind of looking for that. Well, you know, they want to plug in. Well, the number of disruptions this child has had, and uh-huh. uh, you know, like a quality score on their orphanage. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, how children react to the situations that they have experienced vary from child to child. So um, this. This may be a very resilient child. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting combination between uh, parental preparation, parental temperament, child temperament, child preparation. In this case, I, I don't know that the child had much preparation. But, you know, it all is an amalgam that comes together. Yeah. And and you can't predict it always. You really can't. I can't tell you the number of times I've interviewed people. And the, the child, uh, if you had described that they had adopted more than one, and if you asked me to describe which of the two I thought was going to have the, the most mm-hmm. problem adjusting, mm-hmm. I would be wrong. Yes. And that's the that's the the unknown, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. But that's kind of the beauty of it, too. <laughs> Amen. Here's one. We are planning to adopt a waiting child from China between 18 and 36 months old. Our biological son is almost three, so hopefully he will be between four and five when we get our daughter. 
well, I like this question. How can we promote a strong bond between our son and daughter? Now, you had that a very similar situation, <laughs> similar age age split, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much, and it's, it, it is it is a lot of fun to involve your children in this process, and and that's part of the preparation involving them in the process. Um, um, you know, depending on the age of your of the child, because their notion of time um, differs and their understanding of time differs. So some parents choose not to um, share much information with the child if it's if they're still looking at a long time out. But sure. certainly, you know planning ahead that we are going to have other children and, you know, anticipating the types of things that you're going to be able to do together. I think it's real important um, just as when a a birth child is brought into the family or an infant is adopted, um, involving the older child and the types of things that they can do to make them feel important to the process. So our daughter, for example, was real into washing her little brother's hair. So they take baths together and making them feel important because it's sometimes easy any time another child is brought in that the other one kind of has their nose out of joint. So um, feeling that they're important. Um, the thing I would warn against, though, also, though, is making it, sort of sound like it's going to be at Disneyland every day. Um, Some parents want buy-in so badly by their other children that they only talk about what the, you know, wonderful opportunities will be to play together and how your little brother or sister is going to love you, you know, from day one and those type of things. Um, I know... um, You know, and and let's be honest, sometimes toddlers... uh, can you know they they will be they're old enough to get into the oh, older brother's thing they're old enough to have an opinion and so when he says let's play you know power rangers or you know dora the explorer and and uh, younger sister you know has a different opinion uh you know so they're more com- they you're exactly right it's not all it's not all uh, smooth sailing right and, mm-hmm. and you know the other, one suggestion I might have would be to normalize the process of adoption uh by uh, uh socializing with other families mm-hmm. who have uh, uh families built through adoption and also there's so many there's some wonderful books I have a list a fairly extensive list of books at the back of my book on uh preparing uh older siblings for mm-hmm. the adoption process and one um, I love the title I mean there's some that are many uh I uh, Let's see, um, Seeds of Love for Brothers and Sisters of International. Oh, right. Yeah, I like that one, too. Uh, My Mimi is a uh, new one. Just add one Chinese sister and adoption stories, another great one. But there's one that I like, uh, Emma's Yucky Brother. <laughs> and it talks about, it's actually geared a little more for, well, it would actually be perfect for the age. It's, you know, it's a, uh, five would be about as young. It's actually written for the adoption of a, a domestic foster child, but it could be used easily for it's 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 written such that it could be used. And I and it talks about the pain in the neck qualities or, or a little <laughs> of of uh, the new kid. Uh, my book you can get at the library. I'm not hawking it here. You can um, get it and just copy that page. And there's a couple of new ones that I actually have uh, can add to the resource page um, that have come out since uh, my book was. Uh, published. Here's a question from Angela. I'm, I'm not trying to hurry you, but we are truly getting out of town and time, and the, the questions keep coming in. Um, I'm planning on listening to your show. Okay. I have. Here's my question. My husband and I just brought home our son, who is 20 months old, from Ethiopia. He was in at least four different places before being with us. His family for a few months, three different houses or facilities, 
and Addis, and then he's had a lot of trans. He's also he's had a lot of transition. He's also visually impaired. Mm-hmm. We're working on his attachment issues. What I find confusing is determining the difference between toddler behavior and attachment. <laughs> Um, we've talked some about that, but she also says, what are some additional things that we can do to help him attach when we don't have the ability the ability to do eye contact during oh. feedings, comforting, and playtime? Wow. I wanted to make sure I got that in because I think we have talked some about the wow. differences between toddler behavior and attachment or mm-hmm. or how that could be confused. And not mm-hmm. so much the differences, but how it can be confused. Wow, um, that's, an excellent, question. Well, that's is. an excellent question, isn't it? Because it we, is, do, yeah. we use eye contact a lot. We, we you know, do. We use it to understand where our children are at in, in terms of attachment. If they avoid eye contact, et cetera, we use it to build attachment um, when we're doing attachment parenting or rocking and so forth. Um, that's only one component of the attachment process, but they're probably going to be overemphasizing then the tactile. Yeah, I was thinking, um, thinking of the same thing. We're going to have yeah. to make up for it. Mm-hmm. I, um, with the um, you know the mm-hmm. the rubbing and the the touching and the uh, anything you can do to increase the skin to skin contact right absolutely and they're and they've probably already done this too but there's going to be some special strategies they're going to have to use in their home um, toddler proofing their home for a child oh, who is point. visually impaired because again they want their they want their child to um, develop an ownership in the home and have that ability to explore the home in a safe way, Ooh, yeah. et cetera. So there, there, there will be some specific things they will do too, knowing um, that their child has a visual impairment. And they can actually, there's a lot of help available through support groups for um, children with visual impairments and so forth that they can get some help with that in terms of, you know, they're going to use auditory devices that will, you know, be well, and the auditory forms of bonding as mm-hmm. well. Absolutely, the, the singing, the mm-hmm. the cooing, the uh, and especially the ritualistic things that you could do, which would increase the bonding. Yeah, uh, and and just the. The, the ability to, if, if you can get him to take a bottle, the hearing of your heartbeat, yeah. you know, as as he cuddles with you, uh, all those things I'm, uh, would be the. Obviously, with the vision act, you're going to have to work with the auditory and the mm-hmm. tactile. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, bathing with a child, I think, uh, is a wonderful way of, uh, especially with a young child. And if you're uncomfortable mm. with that, then you shouldn't push it. But you know, are, oh, are you no, absolutely, skin to skin. Skin to yeah. skin, yeah. I can't believe we are at a time, and we have a lot of questions that have been coming in. They've been coming in steadily uh, through the show via email. Mary, we really, if you're available, I'd love to do it again sometime uh, because we have got so many questions still here. Thank you so much. This has just been excellent. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. And today I've talked with Mary Hopkins-Best, author of Toddler Adoption, The Weaver's Craft, about the unique rewards and challenges of adopting a toddler. Her big book is available at PerspectivesPress.com, TapestryBooks.com, as well as Amazon.com, and probably bookstores as well. This show is live every Wednesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. You can replay the show or download it as a podcast from iTunes, and you can get both the replay and the podcast from FindingYourChild.com. You can subscribe, by the way, to the download also at this page. Um, To find out more about other shows, sign up for the updates on the homepage of FindingYourChild.com. It's simpler. You just type in your email address. Um, the next two weeks shows, uh, next week on January 30, I will be interviewing Dr. Jane Aronson on the health issues of internationally adopted kids. And on February 6, I will be interviewing Dr. Diane Aronsoft, a developmental psychologist who specializes in families formed using assisted reproductive technologies. 
and uh, she's the author of the book Mommy's Daddy's Donors and Surrogates. Uh, the UN estimates that there are 143 million orphans in the world, including 115,000 children currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster system. These kids, as well as the millions of older children throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about U.S. kids waiting for a family, go to adoptuskids.org. God smiles when a kid finds a family and a family finds a kid. Thanks for joining us today. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's... A burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.